Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also from Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we're wrapping up the week with Minute 30, which begins with Takagi wondering why his captors want access to his workstation, and it ends with Hans asking, Who said we were terrorists? Which is a terrible Hans Gruber impression, sounds a bit more like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So, before we get into the minute proper, we were introduced to Takagi's workstation yesterday, which has an interesting design. It's a large wooden surface with kind of a flip-up display in the minute, middle of it where the screen is held, as if he has the ability to put his computer away and have it just be a regular old flat traditional desk. And it's an interesting design. I think when you've got a giant CRT monitor like you would have in 1988, you know, you need to conserve space on top of your desk and it would look a little messy with this giant tube monitor sitting up there. So I like that they hit it in the desk. It looks very clean, very modern. Yeah, I think we forget nowadays where computers are so slim and and a lot of people, even executives, work off of, you know, a laptop. So takes up hardly any room at all. Mm -hmm. We forget that computers used to be gigantic and really ugly. (laughs) And they just sat on your desk, taking up all of the space. Yeah. So I appreciate the nod to trying to take this big, ugly thing and make it executive. The whole room is beautiful and sleek and clean. And having a computer on the desk would ruin the entire thing. Yeah, I don't think we've talked too much about the design in the room, but there's a lot of really dark, rich wood. Yes, it's very, very sophisticated and understated. Yeah, it's got a lot of these very stylized elements uh, mixed in with some, some greenery to really just make it seem very different. Yes. From the regular workstations that we've seen in other floors. Yes. And your eye is most definitely drawn to the models that are spread around the room. And certainly, like Hans, drawn to the bridge model mm-hmm. it being the largest, the most dramatic in the room. Yeah. And one thing that really gets lost in the background, there are these, I don't think they're actual terracotta, but there are these statues of like warriors and whatnot lining the edge of the room by the windows and then you see like there's some greenery outside of the window but it's it's got kind of a far east flair to it that way Mm -hmm. you can read you really get the sense that the nakatomi corporation is a far east corporation as to something a bit more domestic and we were talking about mr takagi earlier today off of the microphone i was bringing up this idea that he's a japanese executive and you very quickly reminded me that he is not, he, he's not trained like a Japanese executive. He is trained in America in a couple of different places. Mm-hmm. He is an American businessman who happens to be Japanese. Yeah. I mean, he has for all of his life, you know, except for those two years before his family moved to California, has been an American. Yeah. Trained in that American style. And I like that he, at least in his design, I don't know if he's necessarily the person who designed his office, but in his design, he does pay tribute to <laughs> his ancestry. I or can least, imagine that. <laughs> or at least he lets someone from the company decorator design it that way. <laughs> was brought in 
told a few details about this man whose name was Takagi. So they're like, oh, okay, well, then we're going to go Japanese. <laughs> it's like those uh, those home makeover shows. Yeah. Where they do the homes, like the bedrooms for the kids and stuff. And they're like, oh, this little boy likes cowboys. We're going to do everything in his bedroom in cowboys. Because <laughs> this right. minute, he likes cowboys. Yep. But he's a little boy. So in two months, he's going to like... Spacemen? Yes. That's what I was really going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the room is going to be out of date and yep. unenjoyable. Uh, so it, it, it definitely seems a little stereotyped to me. But it's, but it's also not like overdone. Yeah. I mean, the room is beautiful. It's really great. What kind of stands out to me as an interesting design choice is the large zigzag-shaped table. Do you remember seeing that? Yes. It's an interesting piece of furniture. Yes. And I don't know if it's one large piece or if it's several smaller pieces. Right. It does seem like his conference table. Yeah. So I imagine it filled up with people. Oh, that must be terribly inconvenient to hold a meeting at that table. Because if you're in one know. of the L sections, they're like there's someone well, sitting behind you. Right. That kind of makes me feel like the the point of that particular conference table is less to conference with each other and more to listen to the person standing at the head of the table talking. Yeah. Which is a, just a different dynamic to a group meeting like that. Mm -hmm. But those chairs also swivel. Not these specific ones. These Not ones the are ones. Four, four leg wooden chairs. Oh. Yeah. That seems very controlling. Yeah. We never actually see me. anyone have a meeting at this table. The right. most we see is John scrambling underneath it. Underneath to not it. Be shot. Right. <laughs> and the fact that someone is walking on the table at the time kind of tells me that it's just one large piece of furniture, which tells me also that it must have been a pain in the butt to move. It probably came in through the window. <laughs> probably. Before they put all the windows in, they yeah, just lift just... everything up on an elevator and whoop, right through. Yep. Yeah. Same way they get pianos in and out. They don't go through the inside, they go through the outside. Mm -hmm. So getting back to Mr. Takagi. He is standing over Theo and he points at the computer and he says, I don't have that code. And then he looks over at Hans. He says, you broke in here to access our computer? Any information you could get when they wake up in Tokyo, they'll change it. You won't be able to blackmail our executives, threaten our pro, and then he just kind of gets cut off. <laughs> I was wondering if the script had the rest of that word. Pro, nope. like profits? Process? Those were the two I thought of. So all, when Julia says script, I'm looking at the subtitles for the movie. So this is, I don't have like a shooting script or anything like that. But I imagine even in that proper shooting script, they It'd just probably say, cut okay, off right there. you off. Yeah, I'm curious as to what exactly that word is supposed to be. I feel like you saying that it's probably profits is 100% correct. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Why doesn't he have the codes? At least one of them. I can understand him not having both, but why wouldn't he have at least one of those codes? And the other one, one of them was like a daily cipher. Mm-hmm. Which, based on Ocean's Eleven, going back to Ocean's Eleven, you know, that daily cipher is held by somebody specific. Yeah. And that somebody specific, their job each morning is to turn over that daily cipher. Mm -hmm. So, for one, they need that person. So, the two things they're looking for, like we mentioned yesterday, are the Ultra Gate Key and the Daily Cipher. They might go on Japan time. So, when the Daily Cipher comes out, yeah, it ticks over at midnight... Well, maybe that's midnight Japanese time. Mm -hmm. And so the daily cipher by that point in the evening has already ticked over. And so Hans, in a uncharacteristic lapse of judgment, 
didn't know that specific detail. So if he thinks, oh, they change the cipher daily, he probably thinks, well, they probably change it locally. And who knows, maybe they change it internationally. And that's why Takagi doesn't have the daily cipher at that exact moment, because he's going to get it sent to him when the office opens at 9 a.m. Yeah, okay. The the business might handle it that way. Right. Okay, I I can see that as a reasonable explanation as to why he doesn't have at least one of them. Mm -hmm. He does, the way he says, I don't have that information, is very like, of course I don't have that information. Why would you think I have that information? Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, why wouldn't you have that information? Yeah, you are the president of Nakatomi Trading. (laughs) Why not? So I'm wondering if he's telling the truth. Yeah. I am not 100% sure one way or another if he's bluffing or if he is, you know, telling the truth. I kind of feel like he's telling the truth, though. I feel like the way he sells it in his performance in this minute and in Monday's minute, mm-hmm. you know, this it's is a, something that is just out of his hands. Yeah, it seems like a very emotional response. So that would lend me to believe that he really doesn't have it. One thing I really like about his response here is that he is so incredulous that they are doing all of this work just to steal company secrets. And I like that that's the first thing he goes to because as the president of the corporation, the only thing he does on that computer is company secrets, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. <laughs> they want into the vault, which they're going to say in a moment or two, but how often does Takagi go into that vault? Rarely, yeah. is my estimation. Yeah. Why would he need to? So he does not have the Daily Cipher, and I'm willing to bet that if they called up the IT department, they're probably not there. They're probably all home. Mm-hmm. Taking vacation days. Because the IT the department doesn't get invited to the company Christmas party. Not usually. Well, they do at my work, but that's because... Your work is educational and they're all inclusive. Yeah. I don't work at a large college. It's, it's, it's fairly small to medium sized, but I don't think you normally see in corporations the nerds down in IT getting invited to the executive no. Christmas parties. No, not at all. If there is someone that's IT related at that party, it's probably the CIO, and they don't know all the little minutia. No. It's not their place to. They are managerial. They are not code <laughs> monkeys. <laughs> if there's anybody in IT at the party, it's probably because someone messed up the computer that's playing the music. Yeah. And they need IT to come <laughs> fix it. Call them in. Oh, I love getting called in on stuff like that because, at least for me, it's a minimum four hours overtime as soon as I step foot in the door. Yep. I could be there two minutes and I get paid the full four hours. It's great. I love unions. <laughs> <laughs> So, Takagi is, like I said, flabbergasted that they would do all of this for something that is so for naught. Because, like he says, if they try to get anything out of that computer, the home office in Tokyo will just change it. They'll just, any numbers that they pull, any uh, contact information, any code numbers or anything like that, yeah, they can just remotely change that right from the home office, according to Takagi. Yes, which kind of brings up a point, jumping ahead a few seconds. So in the computer, they have these fail-safes, all these security measures just to get into the vaults, and then even to get into the computer, if Gruber was after information, the information would just be changed because they have security measures in place so that they can't be blackmailed, taken advantage of, things like that. But in the vaults, They have $640 million worth of bearer bonds. 
that are completely unprotected. If somebody got their hands on them... Well, I wouldn't call them completely unprotected. I mean... But once they were acquired... Oh, yeah. There are zero protections on those bearer bonds. So it just seems foolish. Yeah. Well, I mean... To have... To be in possession of something with so little guarantees or insurance or safety measures at all. Well, I... That vault Aside is Aside from the vault itself. The vault is incredibly impressive, and they have to go through hell to open that vault. It's not a slouchy thing. But why do those... Oh, my biggest question is, why do those bearer bonds exist at all? Because they have to keep them somewhere. Why do they exist? Like, why not just cash them in? Why were they ever created? I don't know. I don't know why someone would hold it on makes, to bearer bonds. It makes me suspicious, because I, I don't know anything about bearer bonds, so I looked it up on Wikipedia... And let me pull up the page. It mentions in the Wikipedia article that bear bonds have historically been the financial instrument of choice for money laundering, tax evasion, and concealed business transactions in general. Mm-hmm. So that reiterates that Nagatomi may not be on the up and up. Maybe. And if they have that much in untraceable financial documentation, I'm very suspicious of them. Well, it also could be, you know, they're dealing internationally, you know, it might be a more consistent way of trading around be like, hey, this is a bearer bond for this amount of money, we are going to give this to you as payment. And this person from wherever they are in the globe can take that and be like, all right, I now have this payment. It's different than writing a check. And that payment is untraceable. Yeah. That's not cool. (laughs) That is not cool. That is not good business. Yeah. So we are about to find out about that because Mr. Takagi is cut off by Hans Gruber telling him to sit down, which I got major Snape vibes from that. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I actually went online and I found a page full of Snape quotes and I did a word search for the word sit. And on this particular page, it only came up one time and it was in reference to, I think, Sorcerer's Stone where Snape is grilling Harry about potions on day one, which was a major dick move. No which way about it. Absolutely. And Hermione is sitting there straining to, you know, answer the question, and he tells Hermione to sit down. And they didn't include that in the movie, and they didn't even include that, I think, Harry's first day in Snape's class is technically a deleted scene, but they don't include that line of Alan Rickman telling Hermione to sit down. And so it only exists in this. It doesn't exist in the Harry Potter movie as far as I could understand or find, which is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we have Alan Rickman saying it. Oh, yeah. We can just voice print it in. Yeah. 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 That's a bit of a hassle, though. I don't know if I want to spend time <laughs> doing that. In this moment where Gruber commands Takagi to sit down, I like it because... There's a lot of power plays going on, which is definitely something this movie has in common with our movie, Mad Max, mm-hmm. where much of the time that the villain is speaking it is a power play of keeping control and keeping people down. So definitely something I can relate to that we've seen very much in the past. Takagi had wrested control a little bit from Gruber when he started talking about, you want into our computer system, anything you find, we're going to change, you yeah. can't blackmail us. 
he started taking control from Gruber. And Gruber, in one one swift phrase, takes it all back. Mm-hmm. And Takagi obeys. Yeah. He sits down. It's very similar to that one scene in Mad Max where the toe cutter has kidnapped Max's baby. And he's confronted by Max's wife, Jessie. And she wants her baby back. And... He is talking to her about all these different things. And then she's like, I just want my baby. And he's like, don't change the subject. Absolutely. And it's that same exact thing where he is starting to take a turn from looking at the whole situation a little bit more lightheartedly to getting really serious about this. It's like, no, I'm having my fun. You can't derail this. Yeah. You know, Hans is like, okay, the time for play was earlier. Riding in the elevator, talking about models, that was all fun and good. But now it's my time. You need to get on with my plan. He said, Mr. Takagi, I'm not really interested in your computer, but I need the code key because I am interested in the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. And the computer controls the vault because it is a very sophisticated vault. Yes, it's definitely like a movie vault. Yeah. It's got, I think, six or seven layers of protection, and then yep. there's an electromagnetic lock that holds it shut. Yes. Like, this thing is substantial. And if Takagi handed them the code, they would open up the vaults, like, in two minutes flat. They'd empty that thing out and be on their way. But Takagi doesn't have that code, and so he can't just give them the bearer bonds. A uh, quick question. How did Gruber know about the bearer bonds? I don't think we're ever given any clues that I noticed mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, but we're d- talk about company secrets. I mean, yeah, their very existence should have been a highly kept secret. We're not really shown the planning stages of no. of Hans's you know work putting this plan together. I think it would definitely be a movie of its own. Like, it would be really interesting to see Die Hard from Hans Gruber's like perspective. Like a prequel? Like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead style oh, production. we can't ever have that. Nope, not anymore. That's sad. Well, you know, we got CG technology. Yep. If they can bring... Uh, uh, Peter Cushing? Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah, if they can bring Peter Cushing back to the big screen with movie magic... And D.H. Carrie Fisher mm-hmm. down to when she was however old in 1977. Like, we can plaster Alan Rickman's younger 1988 face on an actor. I don't think it would necessarily be good because I don't think the technology is necessarily there yet. It would be an interesting movie, though. Yeah. Although it would be very, to bring it up again, it would be kind of Ocean's Eleven-y. Yeah, yeah. But... I very much enjoy those movies. Like Ocean's Eleven, The Italian Job. I love those movies because I love seeing like the planning stages and it being executed so expertly and, well, being successful. People have always loved those movies. Like Italian Job has been made twice. Ocean's Eleven has been made twice. That's right. They're they're all remakes. Yeah. We just don't have a remake of Die Hard from Hans' perspective. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe if they... Take the story, but just do a whole new cast, just different characters. Like, yeah, it's this exact story from their perspective, but it's not them specifically. That might work. Yeah. So, get on it, Hollywood. (laughs) Quit messing around. So, Hans tells Takagi what he wants to get into the vault for. And Mr. Takagi is flabbergasted, to say the least. Saying, you want money? What kind of terrorists are you? And I love that... 
He's so taken aback that this is all just about money. Like ever since Hans and his people walked in, they were posturing like they were terrorists. Like this was some sort of ideological assault. And now Takagi is like, wait, hold on. What? Because he has been operating this entire time thinking these are international criminals of the violent sort and I need to protect the other people of the company. And now he's like, wait, you just want money? This is a stick up? Yeah, it's kind of a letdown. Like he was mentally prepared to deal with all of this. And now it's just that. <laughs> I feel like he's a little disappointed. <laughs> I He had every reason to think that it was about something larger. Right. To think that it was about the ecology of the area surrounding the bridge. To think that it was about trade secrets. Mm-hmm. That's where Gruber led him. Yeah. Like, from the very moment he stood up in front of the group, started talking about corporate greed, that's where we've been led to, led to think. Yeah. And, so Hans hears that question, and he starts laughing. Yeah, that really annoyed me. I love this line. I love the delivery. But the fact of it annoys me. Yeah, he looks up at Takagi, and he says, who said we were terrorists? And I'm like, like you yeah. kind of did, just not so many words. Right. <laughs> My my thought was what went what went through my head is it me I say that you're a terrorist because that's how you're behaving right I mean do terrorists call themselves terrorists No not usually Yeah I I, I don't think that they do It's other people that label them as terrorists Yeah Well I am labeling him as a terrorist Yeah I mean if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and waves around a machine gun like a duck well it's a terrorist Yes You know not that all ducks are terrorists, all ducks are rapists, but that's an entirely different subject altogether. Only the male ones. <laughs> but we're not in the wrong for thinking that Hans and his team of foreigners, <laughs> for lack of a better term, you know. That's going to get sticky. German nationals coming to America talking about corporate breed that need, or rewind, German nationals talking about corporate greed and how they are going to be shown the true use of power and all that stuff. Like, that's very ideological and kind of terroristy talk. Absolutely. And <laughs> I, I'm a, a little disappointed that our week ends here. Right. Because uh, I would love to see the next minute, the see and get to analyze the rest of this interview mm-hmm. and, and get to chew through the fact that he claims he's not a terrorist, even though he's been acting like a terrorist. Yeah. I mean, normal non-terrorists don't go around dropping Arafat's name like it's no big thing. <laughs> like, there's a large population of people across this globe that hear the name Arafat and be like, oh yeah, the Palestinian terrorist. But that's beside the point. I do appreciate that we get to end on such a good line of who said we were terrorists. It it is delivered so wonderfully and just so almost innocently. Like, who said we were terrorists? Like, what a silly suggestion. It's the kind of line... Why would you think that? It's the kind of line that is perfectly delivered by Alan Rickman, but it's not the kind of line that you can really bust out in daily conversation. Like... Not really in today's world anymore, but, you know, if you're sitting no. in the break room and someone sets you up for that, like, oh, what kind of what kind of person brings egg salad for lunch? And you'd be like, ah, who said it was egg salad? I don't, it doesn't work. It's not a line that easily slips into daily life, you know, which is a shame because it is a really good line. 
Yeah. (laughs) I think the only thing that I have left in my notes that we didn't talk about, just a quick mention, I did the inflation conversion for 640 million. Yeah. How does that, how does that come out in uh, today money? In today money, it about doubles. It's 1.3 billion. Ooh. And I, I checked that on a couple of different sites. And they all came out roughly the same. So $1.3 billion in today's money. That's a lot of money. It is. I was actually surprised it doubled. So I was actually surprised by that because usually I'm surprised by how little things inflate. Like when people talk about inflation, I'm always surprised by how low the new number is. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually surprised by how high that number, the new number is. So... Yeah, one point three in corporate th- theft. Yeah, that's that's a lot. It so, is a lot. Fun fact: When I was researching what bearer bonds are, I came across a message board, and the first question was: If I stole six hundred forty million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds, how would I go about laundering that? And one of the first comments was, "You just watched Die Hard, didn't you?" Yeah. <laughs> That is a very specific amount of money. And the short answer is however the hell you want to because... Well, you have to turn those bearer bonds... You have to claim that money from Nagatomi. No, you you just take the bearer bond to a bank and they'll pay you for that bearer bond. I thought the money had to come from Nagatomi because they're Nagatomi bearer bonds. No, no. Bearer bonds are... <sighs> from any bank? Bearer I don't bonds think I really understand just, how bearer bonds work. Bearer bonds are basically a sheet of paper with an amount on them. And if you possess that piece of paper, you possess that money. It's like a giant dollar bill. And it's not trackable. It's not something that... So that's even more anonymous than I thought it was. Yeah. And that makes Nagatomi even more suspicious yeah, than no, I thought they were. No records of owner or transactions involving that ownership. If, that is so sketchy. Yeah. It's, you know, it's why it's favored by people who want to remain anonymous. I didn't read into it too, too much. But in 1982, the United States passed a law limiting the power of bearer bonds. Mm-hmm. That's why. Because it's just too much. It's too much freedom with so much money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Especially when you have amounts in the upwards of $640 million. Right. And even a little blip that I saw in my search, the United States only has about a hundred million left in bearer bonds mm. out there in the world. So, eventually so they stopped uh, using them. Eventually they'll pay out. Yeah. Eventually. So. And they only issued them in amounts up to $10,000. Mm. Now, once way, 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 way down the road in the movie, we see the bearer bonds fluttering through the air and there's quite a bit of paper. So I'm wondering what denominations they're in. Yeah. That'd be interesting. There's a lot of physical paper, so maybe they are in like $10,000 nominations. Anyway, that brings us around to the end of this week. We hope that you've enjoyed spending it with us. We know that we've enjoyed spending it with you. Uh, Next week, your hosts will be Gary Roby and Victoria Laguna from the Harry Potter Minute and Ferris Bueller's Minute Off. Have fun with them. Yes. You're you're going to have a good time. Don't tell them we said that. But yeah, they're they're a good group. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage at madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, and you can join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find more about the Movies by Minute format 
at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, who said we were terrorists? <laughs>